Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com premium. It only costs $5 a month. Today's podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's better to be careful, especially when it's as simple as using ExpressVPN. Go to expressvpn.com slash gold and you'll get an extra three months free on a one-year package. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Shopify. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving small entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for just big business. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash gold. Before I get into the big news of the day, which was the culmination of the Fed's two-day open market committee meeting, where the Fed announced exactly what the markets had expected, a 50 basis point increase in the Fed funds rate, the new rate at 4.5%, meaning the target rate is now 4.25% to 4.5%. But before I really delve into that news, I want to start off by talking about the big news of yesterday, and that was the release of the November CPI data. And in fact, that CPI number set the tone for the way traders were positioning themselves ahead of today's meeting. The expectation for the November CPI was for a gain of 0.3, and that would have represented a slight improvement over the 0.4% gain in the prior month. Well, the number came out at up just 0.1, one-tenth of 1%. That was below the low end of the consensus range, which went from a low of 0.2 to a high of 0.5. So this was good news as far as the market was concerned. The year-over-year inflation rate, which stood at 7.7 in October, was supposed to drop to 7.3 in November, and instead it dropped all the way down to 7.1. Again, below the low end of the consensus range, which went from 7.2 on the low end to 7.6 on the high end. So that was good news. Then if you strip out food and energy, because nobody eats and nobody needs energy. So if you take out that part and look at the core, they were expecting an increase of 0.4, which actually would have been hotter than the 0.3 from the prior month. Instead, we got just 0.2, again, below the low end of the consensus range, which went from 0.3 to 0.5. And the year-over-year core, which was supposed to fall to 6.1 from 6.3 in October, fell to 6.0, this time matching the low end of the consensus forecast, which went from 6.0 to 6.3. Now, as soon as this number came out, stock market futures skyrocketed, but so did gold futures and the dollar index tanked. I think on its low, it was down better than one and a half percent on the day. It recovered some of those losses yesterday, but I think it closed right at 104 on Tuesday. Gold, which was up $30 pre-market, was up over $40 an ounce once the U.S. stock market started to trade. And in fact, when the Dow Jones opened up, it was up about 700 points, but it did manage to surrender all of that gain. It was down over 100 points 
at one point during the day. So you had better than an 820-point intraday swing. Now, by the time they rang the closing bell, the Dow was positive, about 100 bucks, but a far cry from the 700-point rally that it began the day with. But the excitement was all about the fact that inflation came out lower than expected. Now, it's not that inflation is low. Sure, 0.1 would be a low rate if we had 0.1 every single month, but we don't. And of course, if people were struggling with a high cost of living in October, their struggle didn't get any easier with an additional 0.1% increase in prices. No, if prices were too high in October, they're even higher in November. What consumers need to get relief is a decline in prices. Now, of course, the Fed would say, oh, that's terrible. We can't have deflation. Well, if we have a huge increase in prices, what's so bad about having a decrease in prices to bring them back down? Remember, the Fed talked about inflation averaging. They wanted inflation to average 2%. Well, last year, inflation was 7.7%. The year-over-year rate of inflation in November is 7.1. It's probably going to end the year north of 7, which means we've got two years of inflation, which when added together represents a 15% increase in the cost of living. That is a huge increase. And especially when you consider the fact that it's probably double that because the CPI is only capturing about half of the increases in consumer prices that consumers are actually paying. That is a massive increase in the cost of living. That is why so many people are moonlighting. And again, that's why we have so many jobs being created because people can't pay the bills with one job. They now need second and third jobs to pay these higher prices. So this is not a strong labor market. This is a weak labor market and a weak economy where people are forced to work multiple jobs when they used to be able to get by with just one. In fact, I just read that the percentage of young Americans, and those are 18 to 29-year-olds, that are still living at home with their parents is now at the highest level since 1940. Now, that was the end of the Great Depression, and so a lot of people had a hard time moving out during that period of time. We haven't been in a depression yet, at least not officially. I think by the time it's said and done, everyone's going to acknowledge that this is actually a greater depression, but we have nearly 50% of 18 to 29-year-olds living at home with their parents. Why in 2022 are so many young adults still living with their parents? A, because they don't have jobs at all. And if you don't have a job, well, you can't afford to pay rent. Or B, you have a job, but the job doesn't pay you enough to pay rent. So you don't have any choice other than to stay home and live rent-free with your parents. Now, maybe some of these young adults are chipping in and helping their parents pay the rent or pay the mortgage, whatever they're doing. But in fact, one of the reasons that young Americans have money to spend on clothing or travel is because they're not spending on rent because they're living at home. But of course, most young Americans would prefer not to live with their parents. The fact that they end up having to live with their parents is a sacrifice that they have to make because the labor market is not strong enough to provide young Americans with a high enough real wage so that they can afford 
to leave the nest. So a lot of parents who are looking forward to being empty nesters now have a nest full of their grown kids who can't afford to fly the coop. But the point is that prices are still rising. And if the Fed was really true to its commitment of averaging inflation of 2%, well, how many years do we have to have inflation way below 2%? And there's not a lot of room to get below 2% if you want to be above zero. But how many years of sub 2% inflation are we going to need to get the average rate of inflation down to 2%? In fact, the Fed is not even projecting that inflation is going to go down to 2% in 2023. Its current projection for 2023 average inflation is 3.5%. Now, of course, I think that's optimistic. I think we're going to miss the mark by a mile. But that's what the Fed is projecting for 2023. And even in 2024, they're not looking for 2%. The projection there is 2.5%. So maybe 2025 is the first year that the Fed believes it will finally succeed in getting inflation back down to 2%. But if the Fed is going to stick to its commitment that inflation average 2%, we'd have to have some years where prices decline. Otherwise, there's no way we're ever going to get the average down to 2%. Of course, that's not going to happen. Inflation averaging will never be brought up again. It was only brought up initially as a ruse because the Fed needed some excuse why it was allowing inflation to be above 2%. So it came up with this idea that we needed inflation above 2% to make up for all the years that it was below 2% so that we could bring the average up to 2%. Well, that was a bunch of nonsense then. I called out the Fed for how ridiculous that policy was. But again, now that we're so far above 2%, they're never going to talk about the need to average 2% because that would require much lower inflation than the Fed is possibly capable of delivering given the current state of the fiscal budget, how much money has already been printed and how much money they're going to print to monetize these enormous deficits. So we're never going to get back down to 2%. And that is the real important point that seems to be lost on everybody. What investors are trying to figure out is, has inflation peaked? Have we seen peak inflation? Now, I think the answer to that question is no. I don't think inflation has peaked. Now, it may have peaked for a short period of time. It may take until the second half of 2023 before we get a year-over-year rate of inflation that was higher than the high watermark for 2022. But who knows, maybe it'll take into 2024. But the one thing that I'm certain of is that we're not going anywhere near 2%. And that is what investors still don't understand, that the days of low inflation are over and we're living in an era of high inflation. And that is a complete game changer for the Fed. And the Fed has yet to come to terms with this new reality, nor has the market, because investors who don't understand that the game has changed, well, they're going to be playing by the old rules and they will lose if they don't adopt their strategy to the new reality of high inflation and higher interest rates. Now, we still have negative real interest rates, but the nominal rate is higher and inflation is much higher. And more importantly, it's going to get a lot higher and it's introducing another element of risk into the markets because prior to that, 
investors were confident that inflation would stay around 2%. Once they have to acknowledge that it could be much higher than 2%, but how high is anybody's guess? That introduces a lot of risk that needs to be priced into financial markets that had been priced out when so many investors were lulled in to a false sense of complacency, and they actually believed that the Fed could deliver on its commitment, that it could fine-tune the inflation rate to such a precise degree that it could keep it right around 2% indefinitely. But the most significant market reaction to the better-than-expected inflation data was not the stock market. After all, the Dow couldn't even hold on to its big rally. The big news was in the foreign exchange market and the gold market, because even though the dollar didn't close on the lows, it still closed the day with big losses. The same thing with gold. Even though gold backed off its $40 high, it still closed the day about $30 higher, and more importantly, back above the $1,800 an ounce level. And as I've been saying, to the extent that we do get a Santa Claus rally before the end of the year in the stock market, it will be short-lived because this is not a bull market in stocks. We're still in a bear market, but this is a correction within that bear market. In contrast, we are in a new bull market in gold. We're in a bull market in gold stocks, and I believe that we are in a bear market in the dollar. Now, we're not technically in a bear market yet because the dollar hasn't fallen enough, but it is looking so toppy to me on a chart that I'm going out on a limb now, given that we are below the 105 level and we have closed below that level for two weeks in a row now in the dollar index. And in fact, after today's action, the dollar index is now at 103 and a half. This supports my forecast that the moves in the dollar and in gold that we've seen over the last couple of months are sustainable and will continue into 2023, whereas I still expect any gains that the U.S. stock market makes in December to be lost probably as soon as January because the fundamentals don't support a continuation of strength in U.S. stocks, but they do support strength in gold and weakness in the dollar. The holiday season is here again, and it's the season of giving. But you've already given enough to your internet service provider if you haven't been using ExpressVPN every time you go online this year, which is one of the reasons that I'm using ExpressVPN. Just go to expressvpn.com gold to learn more. I'm not just talking about the enormous internet bills you pay every month. Every time you go online without using ExpressVPN, your internet service provider, like AT&T or Verizon, can see and log every single website that you visit. And yes, that includes all the sites you visit in incognito mode. And then on top of that big bill, they're also legally allowed to sell all your browsing activity to third-party advertisers and reap the profits. But if you prefer to keep that information private and control who gets to see it, make sure that you're using ExpressVPN. The app encrypts and reroutes 100% of your network data through their secure servers so your provider can't see a thing. And it couldn't be easier to use. Just fire up ExpressVPN on any one of your devices, your phone, your laptop, whatever you got, tap one button to connect, and that's it. And unlike your internet service provider, ExpressVPN is committed to your privacy. 
Their privacy policy has been audited by third parties so you can rest assured your data is not being logged by anyone. You've given enough to your ISP this year. It's time for you to start taking. So take back your internet privacy today with a VPN rated number one by TechRadar Unmashable. Visit expressvpn.com gold and get three extra months of ExpressVPN for free. Now, following yesterday's better than expected inflation report, coming into today, I think a lot of traders were hopeful that Powell would acknowledge the progress that has been made on reducing inflation and somehow indicate that an acknowledgement of that progress meant that the Fed might not have to raise rates quite as much as it once thought. Maybe the terminal rate might be a little lower. Maybe the rates might not have to stay so high for so long. And I think that's why you had the Dow up about 200 points before the announcement. That's why the dollar came into the day down because there was that hope that we might get some type of language from Powell that would signify that the Fed was not quite as hawkish as it was before. Now, I'm not exactly sure why traders were hoping for that type of pivot, because Powell himself had given no indication that it was coming. But I suppose hope springs eternal, especially when it comes to the Fed pivot. But Powell immediately threw cold water all over that idea. And as soon as the announcement came out, even though the move was expected, the language did not reflect any type of softening in the Fed's resolve to reduce inflation. And the stock market immediately sold off. In fact, on the lows of the day, that 200-point gain turned into a 400-point loss. Now, by the time the bell rang, The Dow was down about 140 points, more than negating the 100-point rise from the prior day. But if you look at both the prepared statement and the Q&A, Powell was every bit as hawkish as he has been. What stood out to me, though, was the reaction in the gold market and the foreign exchange market. Because even though the dollar rallied and went into positive territory, after being negative going into the announcement, the dollar rolled over and closed back down near the lows just above 103 and a half. And even though gold sold off and at one point was down over $10, it got back into positive territory before closing down just a couple of bucks. And once again, closing above the $1,800 level, I think the final price on the day was about $1,808 per ounce. So the fact that gold was able to hold above 1800 despite hawkish words from Powell about the Fed's commitment to doing whatever it takes to bringing inflation back down to 2% and the fact that the dollar actually fell in the face of that commitment, again, supports my thesis that we've seen the highs in the dollar and the dollar is headed lower and we've seen the lows in gold and gold is headed higher. But getting back to some of the things that Powell said, first in his prepared remarks, when Powell began to address the press conference, the first thing Powell said was that the Fed understands the hardship that inflation is causing. Now, what you really have to do is substitute the word inflation for government, because if inflation is causing a hardship for the people, Well, why do we have inflation? 
inflation was caused by the government. So if inflation is causing hardship, it's the government that is causing hardship because it's the government that is creating inflation. How does the government create inflation? It's really a two-step process. First, the government, Congress, spends money that it doesn't collect in taxes, the difference being a deficit. And now the Federal Reserve monetizes that deficit. It creates inflation. It prints money, quantitative easing, and buys those bonds so that the government can write checks that don't bounce. But that process is why we have inflation. It is a creation of government. It's the Federal Reserve, which technically is not the government, but which practically acts as an arm of government. You've got the Federal Reserve partnering with the federal government, and they are creating inflation. And so they are the source of the hardship. So Powell should be apologizing for the hardship and acknowledging his role in creating it. But no, Powell acts as if inflation just came out of left field, that it has nothing to do with bad fiscal policy or bad monetary policy, that it's just an unfortunate and completely unforeseen consequence of multiple events that were completely out of anyone's control, having something to do with the COVID pandemic, the reopening of the economy, Putin's invasion of the Ukraine, and now Powell is leading a Federal Reserve cavalry that is charging to the rescue. Powell said that he was strongly committed to returning inflation to 2%. So he wasn't just committed to doing it, he was strongly committed to doing it. He also said the Fed was committed to significantly shrinking its balance sheet, not just shrinking it, but significantly shrinking it. He also said that the economy had slowed down from its rapid pace. Now, we never really had a rapidly growing economy. We just had a lot of inflation that masqueraded as growth. We had a lot of Americans spending their stimulus money, running up our trade deficits, but that wasn't real economic growth. That was just inflation. And yes, it has moderated because now that interest rates have risen and the consumers have blown through their stimulus checks, they can't keep spending at the same torrid pace. But none of that was economic growth. It was just inflation-fueled spending. When Powell talked about the fact that growth had moderated, he acknowledged that the Fed's forecast for GDP growth in 2023 is just 0.5. In fact, I think that's about the same forecast it has for 2022. So again, the Fed still thinks we're going to avoid a recession. We're going to have this softish landing. We're just going to have very slow GDP growth. He also talked about the labor shortage as being a problem. Obviously, the markets did not like that. He said that we have too much demand, not enough supply. There's a shortage of workers, and so wages are rising. Now, Powell's been getting a lot of flack for his pushback against rising wages. So he says that he doesn't mind wages going up. In fact, he wants wages to go up. He just doesn't want wages to go up in a way that it contributes to inflation. Now, of course, all of this misses the point that rising wages don't cause inflation. The government wants you to believe that because they always want to find scapegoats, people to blame for the inflation that they create. But wages are just a price. Wages are the price of labor. And rising wages don't cause inflation. It's that inflation causes wages to rise. 
So the reason the price of labor is going up, it's the same reason that the price of everything is going up. Inflation is pushing prices up. The problem is the price of labor is not rising as much as the price of other goods and services. So real wages are going down, but nominal wages are going to keep going up because the Fed is not going to stop creating inflation because the government is not going to stop running budget deficits. In fact, yesterday, after we got the release of the better than expected inflation numbers, we did get a Biden press conference where the president touted the lower inflation numbers and also reiterated his boast of having created all of these manufacturing jobs, the most of any president. Of course, that's only because the people who were temporarily furloughed from their manufacturing jobs before Biden became president were recalled back to the jobs that they already had after Biden became president. And now Biden claimed credit for creating jobs that were already there. But in addition to bragging about jobs, he also bragged about the massive reduction in budget deficits while he was president. Now, he also talked about the reduction in the debt. Now, the debt hasn't gone down at all. The national debt has gone up better than $3 trillion since Biden took the oath of office. We're now over $31.5 trillion. He is talking about the annual budget deficits. And yes, they're not as big as they were when he first took office, but that's because they were at all-time record highs due to COVID. The deficits that Biden is running right now are the highest deficits we've ever run outside a pandemic. So he can't take credit for reducing the deficit given how high it was the first year he was in office. And in fact, he helped make that deficit even higher with the stimulus plan that he signed into law almost immediately after taking office. So he helped jacked the budget deficits up to all-time wreck highs and now wants to take credit for bringing them down, even though the current deficits are much higher than the deficits that we had under Trump pre-COVID. And of course, these deficits are already starting to rise as higher interest rates take a toll on the cost of servicing the debt. They also exact a toll on the Fed and its bloated balance sheet. And the fact that now the Fed can no longer send checks to the U.S. government, it has to send bills. So expenditures are rising, tax revenues are going to be falling in a weakening economy, and then all those automatic stabilizers are going to be kicking in as the job losses ultimately do pick up. And so these budget deficits that Biden is claiming credit for shrinking are actually going to get a lot bigger which is one of the reasons we know inflation is going to get a lot higher because despite what Powell is saying right now, when push comes to shove, the Fed is going to monetize those deficits because they don't have the political courage not to do it. There are no Paul Volcker's on today's FOMC. Powell also acknowledged that the current inflation rate remains well above the Fed's 2% target. It's basically triple that 2% target. He did acknowledge that October and November's numbers were welcome, but he reiterated the Fed needs to see more substantial evidence that the reduction in inflation is permanent, that it is on a sustainable downward path. And that is exactly what the markets did not want to hear. 
the markets wanted Powell to claim some sort of victory, to say, yes, this decline shows that our medicine is working. But instead, Powell said, I'm glad to see this, but it doesn't prove anything. We still have a lot more work to do. We still need to see a lot more evidence. And until we do, it's full speed ahead. Now, Powell also said that we need to have a restrictive monetary policy and that while we have moved into restricted territory, he admitted that the current policy is still not restrictive enough, which begs the question, if current policy is not restrictive enough, then why not raise rates more? If you know that the current policy is too loose, then tighten it up right now. Why drag your feet? Why wait till another meeting to make the adjustment that you believe is necessary to make right now? Powell also said that despite the recent high inflation, that long-term inflation expectations remain well anchored. And to an extent, they are certainly in the bond market if you look at the long end of the curve. But I think that's going to change when investors finally come to terms with the reality that high inflation is here to stay and that despite its resolve, there is no way that Fed is going to bring inflation back down to 2%. But Powell acknowledged that the longer inflation remains high, the more likely it is that those expectations will become entrenched. And that is exactly what is going to happen. Can we talk about notifications for a second? Who actually leaves those sounds on anymore? Well, besides that one, that's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Starting your own business is never easy, and it always comes with a lot of risk. That's why so few people actually do it. But now with Shopify, starting your own business has never been easier. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether your thing is vintage teas or recipe for ghee, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of your favorite businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll create an online store in your vibe, discover new customers, and grow the following that keeps them coming back. Shopify has all the sales channels sorted so your business keeps growing. From an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free libraries full of educational content, Shopify's got you every step of the way. It's how every minute new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify, and you will too. When you're ready to launch your thing into the spotlight, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform backing millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. These are the possibilities, and they're powered by Shopify. Shopify empowers you to put yourself out there and turn your dream into a reality. Whether your thing is making ebooks or earrings, Shopify helps make your success possible. Making your ideas real opens endless possibilities. And I love how Shopify makes it so easy for just about anyone to successfully run a small business. It's never been easier to start and grow a small business thanks to Shopify. Go on, try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash gold. Go to shopify.com slash gold to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash gold. Moving on to the question and answer portion of the press conference. The first question came from Steve Leisman, the senior economist over at CNBC. And he asked Powell if he was concerned 
that the recent rally in the stock market may have eased financial conditions? And is he worried about the rise in the markets? And does he feel that he needs to do something about that? Now, Powell basically completely ignored the question, did not answer it, but did talk about the fact that the Fed is committed to fighting inflation, that it needs restrictive policy, and that we're not quite restrictive enough so that more rate hikes are appropriate. He pointed out that the terminal rate of interest, which is the high watermark that the FOMC members are projecting, continues to go up. In fact, right now, that terminal rate is at 5.1%, and that by the end of 2023, most of the FOMC members are looking for a Fed funds rate between five and five and a quarter. In fact, he pointed out that 17 out of the 19 FOMC members now believe that that terminal rate will peak above 5% and that that keeps increasing. And so if the inflation numbers end up surprising to the upside, well, then that peak is going to keep on ratcheting up. Now, another reporter asked him about the size of future hikes. Would he be going 50 basis points or 25 basis points? And Powell's answer was that he didn't think that the pace of the increases was really that important at this juncture. What he feels is more important is how high rates ultimately have to rise, not how quickly we get there, but also how long rates have to stay high before they can come down. Because I think the expectation is that after we have these high interest rates in order to bring down inflation, that somehow the Fed could return interest rates to the low levels to which everybody has become accustomed. But those low levels were, in fact, emergency policies that were put in place first as a result of the 2008 financial crisis, and then as a result of COVID, but interest rates had no business ever being that low, and there is no reason that anybody should be expecting rates to return to those levels again. So to say that, hey, all we have to do is raise rates up to 5%, and then inflation is going to go away, and then we can bring them back down to 1% or 2%, you can't do that without sending inflation right back up reversing all the progress that has been made. But of course, they're not actually going to make any of that progress because the rate hikes that have taken place to date are insufficient to return inflation to 2%, nor do I believe that any future rate hikes will be large enough to do the job because they're not going to be able to complete the mission because of the problems in the economy that are going to be created along the way and because there is no chance they're going to get any cooperation from the U.S. government because they are not going to cut spending. Nobody has the guts to cut any government spending. Nobody wants to raise taxes on the middle class. Some people want to raise taxes on the rich. But even if they can get those tax hikes through a Republican Congress, it's not going to make a difference because there won't be enough revenue there to make any kind of meaningful reduction in the budget deficits that are at the heart of the inflation problem. Another reporter asked Powell how confident he was in the Fed's ability to get inflation under control. And again, Powell said that while the recent data is welcome, that he needs to see 
more substantial evidence that the reduction in inflation is on a sustainable downward path. Basically repeating the identical words that he spoke earlier in his prepared remarks. He was also asked about the soft landing and in his confidence that the U.S. economy will avoid recession. And instead of talking about how confident he was that there would be no recession, he basically said that there's no way to know, that nobody could tell for sure whether or not the U.S. economy is going to have a recession. And if we do end up in recession, whether it will end up being shallow or deep. So it seems that he's waffling a bit on his soft landing and just basically saying, we have no idea what's going to happen. We're just hoping we get a soft landing, but nobody actually knows whether we're going to get a landing at all. Another reporter asked Powell to comment on the pain that he once said Americans would have to endure as a result of the rate hikes that were necessary to bring inflation back down to 2%. And Powell's answer was that the most pain is what Americans would feel if the Fed didn't raise rates enough and allowed inflation to get out of control. That, Powell said, would be the worst pain. And so the pain they're feeling now from higher mortgage rates or other higher costs related to servicing their debt is nothing compared to the pain they would feel if inflation got out of control. Well, the reality is inflation is already out of control. We're already past the point where the Fed has the ability to regain control without causing not just a recession, but a financial crisis. So Americans are going to have to endure the very pain that Powell is claiming that they're going to be spared because the Fed is now fighting inflation. Well, the time to have fought inflation has long since passed. In fact, the Fed has done everything it could to create inflation and continue to create inflation, even after it was obvious what that inflation had done, because early on, Powell said that he would rather err on the side of letting inflation run too hot rather than prematurely cutting off economic growth because he claimed that an inflation problem is easy to solve. Well, he's now finding out that it's not only difficult to solve, it is impossible without inflicting the very sort of pain that he's now convinced can be avoided because he thinks his too little, too late effort is actually going to succeed. And finally, Powell got a question from a reporter as to whether or not the Fed was going to reconsider its 2% inflation target. After all, if the Fed can't really bring inflation down to 2%, why not raise the target, maybe 3% or something like that? But Powell immediately threw cold water on the idea that the Fed was going to raise its target and said, no, we are committed to 2% inflation, and that's what we're going to do. Whether or not we, at some distant point in the future, decide that we're going to revisit that topic, well, maybe, but not now. That is nothing that anybody is thinking about in the here and now. And so for now, we are committed to bringing inflation down to 2%. And I think it was very important that Powell say that, because if Powell gave the markets any hint that the Fed was wavering on that 2% commitment, that the target might be raised, the dollar and treasuries would crash and gold would go through the roof. 
I think the only reason that we're not seeing that happen now is because you still have players in the market who believe that the Fed is committed to 2% and more importantly, that it can actually deliver on that commitment, which it cannot. In fact, Bill Ackman had tweeted out that he believes the Fed should right now go to a 3% target, should tell the world that our target is now 3% because 3% is a lot more achievable than 2% and it could be achieved with less collateral damage to the economy, to employment, to the stock market. Now, in many ways, Ackman is just talking his book. He hopes that the Fed adopts a higher inflation target because that's going to be easier for him to make money as a hedge fund manager, but it will not work. It will be disaster almost immediately because let's say the Fed were to increase the target to 3%. Why would anybody have confidence that the Fed was committed to 3% if it gave up on its commitment to 2%? After all, the reason it would have to abandon 2% would be because the pain of getting to 2% would be too much for the Fed to bear. So it would instead avoid that by going to 3%. Well, if the Fed is going to give up on a 2% target because it's too painful to maintain it, well, what does that say about 3%? It means that when 3% becomes too painful to maintain, well, we'll go to 4%. And when 4% is too painful, we'll go to 5%. So in other words, the minute the target is raised, the target becomes meaningless because everybody realizes that the Fed is not really committed to keeping it that it's all bark and no bite. The bottom line to the whole press conference is that Powell and the rest of the members of the FOMC still are completely clueless as to the problem that they have created. They still think that we have a robust economy. They still think that inflation can be brought under control and that everything is gonna be fine, that we'll have maybe some subpar growth for a while, but then everything will be okay and that no lasting damage will have been done. They are completely oblivious to the disaster that they have created. In the same way that they were completely oblivious to the 2008 financial crisis, even in the summer of 2008, when the crisis was just around the corner. They have no clue that what they've been looking at is just the mother of all bubbles. There has been no legitimate economic growth over the past decade or more because of Fed policy, that Fed policy actually prevented the free market from repairing the damage to the economy that resulted from artificially low interest rates and the malinvestments that those artificially low interest rates created. We needed to clean up that mess, but the mess didn't get cleaned up. We just made a bigger mess because we papered it over with more inflation and we are now headed towards a far greater financial crisis than the one that we had in 2008. After all, the current level of interest rates following today's hike brings us back to the highest levels in 15 years. You have to go all the way back to 2007 to find a Fed funds rate this high. Well, what happened following that Fed funds rate? Well, the next year, 2008, we had the financial crisis. The financial crisis was about debt. And why did that debt become a crisis? Because interest rates went up. 
and it was the increase in interest rates that exposed the unsustainability of the debt and pricked the bubble. Well, now we finally have interest rates back up to the same level that pricked the bubble in 2008, except this bubble is much bigger and it actually takes an even smaller pin to pop it because that's how bubbles work. The bigger the bubble, the smaller the pin. Well, we've already got a pin that's equal to the size of the one that pricked the last bubble, but this bubble is so much bigger because we didn't just have interest rates at 1% for a couple of years. We had them at zero for a decade. And in addition, we had QE1, QE2, QE3, QE4. So the damage that the Fed has done to the economy this time is far greater than the damage that it did back then. And so the ensuing crisis must be proportionally that much worse because the bigger the boom, the bigger the bust. The more mistakes that are made during the boom, the more difficult it is to correct those mistakes during the bust. That is the pain that Powell should be concerned about. And not only the pain of correcting those mistakes, but the greater pain that Americans are going to be forced to endure because we don't correct those mistakes. Instead, the Fed makes an even bigger mistake of creating even more inflation, and we have a currency crisis. We have a U.S. dollar crisis. We have a sovereign debt crisis, which will be a lot worse than the type of financial crisis we had in 2008. And finally, the other big news since my last podcast was that Sam Bankman-Fried was indicted by the U.S. government and remanded into custody by Bohemian authorities, where he is now in jail, having been denied bail, awaiting an extradition hearing, where in all likelihood he will be extradited to the United States to face these criminal charges. He has been charged with conspiracy to commit wire fraud on customers, conspiracy to commit wire fraud on lenders, conspiracy to commit commodity fraud, conspiracy to commit securities fraud, and conspiracy to commit money laundering and conspiring to defraud the United States and for violating campaign finance laws. In fact, if Bankman-Fried is convicted, all of his assets that were acquired as a result of this fraudulent activity will be subject to forfeiture. So in other words, whatever is left of his billions will be gone. Of course, that may be the least of Sam Bankman-Fried's concerns. Now, what struck me as odd was the timing of this indictment, because Sam Bankman-Fried was ready to testify under oath before the United States Congress the very morning following the evening of his indictment. And of course, the minute he was indicted and arrested, that precluded the possibility of a congressional testimony. In fact, even if Sam Bankman-Fried was dumb enough to still want to testify, there's no lawyer that would have allowed it, although I guess he couldn't testify from a jail cell. But usually the prosecutors are smarter. If they know that somebody that they're about to charge with a crime is about to do something so stupid, 
as to testify under oath in front of Congress, they would let him do it. They would have waited until after he finished his testimony before announcing the indictment because everything that Sam Bankman-Fried would have said would have been able to have been used against him. The prosecution would have been handed a early Christmas present, a gift wrapped up in a bow that Sam Bankman-Fried was dumb enough to give the United States government. And everything that he said would have been used against him, and it would have made it much more difficult for him to change his story, to get out of a lie. And of course, if he did lie, which of course he was prepared to lie under oath, well, that's another crime that could have been added to the indictment, perjury. And in fact, lying to Congress, I think, is even worse than regular perjury. So that would have given prosecutors another crime to add to the list, but it also would have made it easier to convict him of all the other crimes. But as far as I can tell from all the evidence that has already come out, this conviction is going to be a slam dunk. In fact, I don't even think that there is going to be a trial. My guess would be Bankman Freed is going to plead this out and accept probably what amounts to a sweetheart deal, because I think there are a lot of powerful people, particularly the U.S. Congress, that don't want this trial. There's probably a lot of truths that a lot of people in government would just assume stay buried, and they don't want them to come out in a highly publicized trial, which this one would be. There would be cameras in the courtroom, and a lot of witnesses would be called, and a lot of dirty laundry would be aired. And so I think what everybody wants is to quietly put this behind them. Bankman Freed is going to go to jail. I'm pretty sure of that. I think it would be ridiculous if he were to escape any jail time. But I think what's going to happen is he's going to plead guilty, but they're going to say, look, he was a young kid. He didn't understand. He made a mistake. He screwed up. He's going to be punished. We're going to take all his money. We're going to take all of his assets, but we don't need to put him in jail for a long period of time. He's paid his debt. Let's rehabilitate him. Let's give him a second chance. And I think that is going to be the best way to prevent a lot of other people from going down with Sam Bankman-Fried. In fact, since the prosecutors saved Bankman-Fried from himself, the fact that they didn't allow him to hang himself with the noose of that congressional testimony, it already shows me that they're looking out for him, that they're trying to minimize the damage, and they didn't want him to testify before Congress. The only way they could stop that testimony was to indict him and to have him remanded into custody. Now, why would the U.S. prosecutors not want Sam Bankman-Fried to testify? In fact, based on what I read of what he was prepared to say, because he wrote up his initial testimony and it was handed in. And in fact, the very first line of his testimony was he effed up. And that's what he put on Twitter. I'm sorry, I effed up. Of course, he didn't say F. He said the entire F word. It's one thing to type the F word onto your Twitter account. It's another thing to begin your congressional testimony by cursing to the Congress. Now, 
in my opinion, a lot of the people in Congress deserve to be cursed at, but even I didn't do that. I testified before Congress twice. In fact, both of my congressional testimony is on my YouTube channel, and I would strongly recommend that if you haven't watched any of those videos that you do so after you finish listening to this podcast. The first one is Mr. Schiff goes to Washington. The second one is Mr. Schiff returns to Washington. I chewed these guys out, but I did it respectfully. I didn't demean the institution. I didn't use curse words. But if you're going to come out and say the F word at the beginning of your testimony, you know it's all downhill from there. And God knows what this guy would have said had he actually testified. And so why did the U.S. government save him from himself? Obviously, there were other people in government who did not want Sam Bankman-Fried to testify live in front of Congress. And so the only way to prevent it was to charge him and have him arrested. And so that's what makes me think there's going to be some kind of deal here. Now, I did watch a lot of the hearing that Sam Bankman-Fried was supposed to testify at. The guy who was testifying there was the person who was appointed as the new CEO of FTX, who's now in charge of winding up the company and sorting everything out. And he's the same guy that was brought in to clean up the Enron mess. And according to him, this is far worse than anything he saw at Enron. But one of the things that struck me as being ironic, where you have all these congressmen and women, particularly Maxine Waters, who chairs the committee, and the good news is she's not going to chair that committee much longer now that the Republicans are going to run the House of Representatives. But Maxine Waters is feigning her concern for her constituents that may have lost their hard-earned money at FTX. And so she's talking about how bad it is that people invested in cryptocurrency and lost money. Well, first of all, they would have lost money anyway. I mean, if Sam Bankman-Fried didn't steal it, they were still going to lose it because all these tokens were going to go down in value. That is the reality. FTX customers were going to lose their money anyway. But the fact of the matter is, the reason that this whole crypto craze got started was Bitcoin. Bitcoin was the first crypto on the scene. And what was the appeal of Bitcoin? Bitcoin became popular initially as an alternative to the U.S. dollar because of the inflation that the Federal Reserve was creating and the budget deficits that the U.S. Congress was running people were looking for an alternative to the U.S. dollar. And they thought that Bitcoin was that alternative. Now, they thought wrong, but the motivation was to escape the inflation that was being created by the U.S. Congress and by the Federal Reserve. And Maxine Waters was a big part of that inflation. So the reason that so many people invested in crypto in the first place was because of Maxine Waters. Maxine Waters and other congressmen chased people out of U.S. dollars into cryptocurrencies. Now, they didn't realize that they were jumping from the frying pan into the fire. They should have bought gold or silver instead of Bitcoin or Ether or anything else. But the fact remains that the reason that people have all these cryptocurrencies, whether it's Bitcoin or any of the altcoins that wouldn't exist, but for Bitcoin, 
is precisely because of the reckless and irresponsible fiscal and monetary policies that Maxine Waters herself was very instrumental in helping to bring about. So in reality, Maxine Waters bears a lot of responsibility for these losses. It's not just Sam Bankman-Fried that is responsible. It's Congress. It's the Federal Reserve that put people into a position where they had to look for an alternative to the U.S. dollar. If we had sound fiscal policy, if we had sound monetary policy, people wouldn't have been looking for alternatives. And so they wouldn't have been in cryptocurrencies and they wouldn't have had those cryptocurrencies deposited at FTX. And if it wasn't for the 0% interest rates and quantitative easing of the Federal Reserve that inflated the crypto bubble in the first place, so many people who got in early wouldn't have made so much money on paper which is what inspired the massive influx of people who came in later because they hoped they would get rich too.